Okay, now, so we're going to launch in, and if you don't have a Bible, Debbie has got some Bibles here this morning, and she can pass those out. So uh, this would be a good day just to have your Bible open. We're, we're going through a series in the book of Galatians, this ancient letter, ancient, ancient letter that has found its way into our New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to some churches in the Mediterranean a couple thousand years ago. And uh, we have looked at some of the big issues in Galatians, and then last week we got started on the actual text of the letter, and we talked about grace and peace. And I know um, that a lot of you have been trying to live out of grace and peace this week, out of shalom. And that's great. That's fantastic. That's foundational. Um, when you look at the letter to the Galatians, what, what usually happens in Paul's letters after he has written this introductory section is that he goes into a thanksgiving section. In every single one of his letters, other than Galatians, this is what he does. He, he gets through the um, introductions, he introduces himself and his audience and his, his, um, talks about grace and peace. And then he gets to the section where he'll thank God for something. He'll, he'll thank God for the faith of the people he's writing to, or he'll thank God for something to do with Jesus, or he'll thank God for the way in which this church has, has blessed him in his, in his ministry or something. He, he's always got something to be thankful for, except in Galatians. When you get to the point in Galatians where Paul would usually have his thanksgiving section and, and lavish praise upon his readers and upon God, what you get instead is this. Let me read from verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's not exactly a Thanksgiving section, is it? It's a little different. You know, instead of, uh, aren't you fantastic and isn't your faith going out into all the world? This is, I'm, I'm actually amazed that you guys are walking away from the very God who called you by his grace. Uh, and notice Paul doesn't say to them, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting me or deserting the church, or deserting the gospel, or deserting the set of beliefs here. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one, God, who called you by the grace of Christ. Paul's actually accusing them of walking away from God. That's how serious the issue is that's going on in Galatia. For Paul, it's not a minor offense. It's not this little issue on which we can agree to disagree. This is the heart of the gospel because what's happening in Galatia is there's a bunch of people convincing these Christians that as well as following Jesus, they need to do this other thing. They need to observe Jewish law with circumcision and Sabbath rules and dietary rules and festival keeping and all of this stuff as well as Jesus. And for Paul, he's just not going to have a bar of it. He says, if, if, if you do this, if you're into that, if that's where you're at, what you're actually doing is walking away from God. That's not what they thought they were doing. They thought they were walking towards God. They thought this is what God required of them. Imagine what it must have been for them to hear that what you're actually deserting the very God who called you. The closer you get to this Jesus plus something gospel, the further you get from God. Not closer, further. So this is a pretty bold accusation, and the Galatians are probably thinking, what happened to our Thanksgiving section, Paul? You know, maybe they just got lost in translation somewhere, but no, they, they instead get this really harsh rebuke. And then he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different 
gospel. A different gospel. Now, here's the thing. In Greek, in the Greek language, there are two words for different or other, different other. The first word is the word alos, and it means another of the same kind. And the other word is heteros, which means another of a different kind, all right, from where we get heterosexual. Now, let me just illustrate this in case this is not clear. This is a tennis ball. Thank you very much. Tennis ball. Okay. This is an alos tennis ball, an alos ball. Another of the same kind. We're tracking so far. All right. This is a heteros ball. Tennis ball, heteros ball. A different kind of ball. A totally different, still a ball, but a ball of a completely different kind. Do you see why this is important? Because you want to hold on to that, Phil? Thanks. Because Paul is saying, well, either he's saying this, is, this, this gospel, this thing that you guys are listening to, it's either a, a, a gospel of the same kind, this complementary message, there's something that's just supplementing and fleshing out what I'm already teaching, or it's a gospel of a totally different kind. And the word that Paul uses here is heteros, not alos. He says, you are turning aside to a heteros gospel. This is a rugby ball. This is not going to make any sense if you're listening online, is it? But this is a different gospel altogether, totally different kind of gospel. And then just in case you're not clear, he, in the next phrase he says, which is actually no gospel at all. And then he uses the word alos. He says this is a, it's a heteros gospel, a different gospel. It's not the same one. It's a rugby ball, not a tennis ball, in case you were confused. So Paul is, is making this abundantly clear that the gospel these Galatians are walking away towards is a totally different message to the one that Paul is proclaiming because it's got a different foundation to it. If the message is Jesus and Jesus alone, then the foundation is Jesus. If the message is, well, Jesus is good, but really you have to do this and this and conform to this and meet these expectations and, and, and cross this bar, it's become another message. Suddenly the, the foundation is not Jesus. Suddenly the foundation is this thing that you have to do, this hurdle that you have to jump, this club that you have to belong to, this line that you have to cross. This is the essence of a different gospel. And the thing for Paul that's really getting him here is that these, these Judaizers were not only promoting this gospel, this other gospel, this other teaching, but they were taking a couple of shots at Paul along the way. They're firing a couple of bullets at Paul. And one of the things they were saying is, this guy Paul over here who preached this gospel, to you, which they would probably say that Paul's gospel was the other gospel, really what, 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 what Paul was doing was giving you a bit of a soft gospel. Paul was giving you a bit of a sellout gospel because Jesus only, I mean, that's, that's not really the, the tough stuff. That's not really all the stuff that we're telling you. It's just an easy way in. Paul's like opening the doors so wide anyone could come in. Imagine that. Imagine the doors being so wide that anyone could actually come into the kingdom. And they say Paul is doing this because in his heart of hearts, you know, don't, don't spread it around, but in his heart of hearts, Paul is really just 
a people pleaser. He's really just doing this because he wants to win friends and influence people. He's just doing this because he wants all the Gentiles to come into the kingdom and he wants this big inclusive and he wants to be liked. He's, he's really the insecure apostle, is what they say. You know, Paul, he's got some issues. He's in counseling. He's doing his best. But, you know, he's just struggling with some self-esteem issues and he's just, you know, he's, he's giving you the soft option because he wants you to be friends. He want, you know, he wants you to like him. <laughs> now, you, I mean, how do you think this went down with Paul? You know, Paul's like, what are they saying about me? Paul, Paul's given up unbelievable amounts in his life, his reputation, um, his career, his standing in, in the community to preach this gospel. And now he hears that he's being accused of being just purely doing it for, for people's applause, just purely preaching the gospel to win people's appro- approval. And that's what's behind this next sort of outburst. Right, I'm trying to prepare you for this because this is, I would say this next paragraph is pretty much the harshest thing Paul ever says anywhere about anyone. It's not very comfortable, all right? So I'm giving you the background so you can see at least what's motivating him. He says this. Yeah, you're all looking in your Bibles now, aren't you? Um, He says, halfway through verse 7, Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And here he comes with 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 the big kick. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that person be under God's curse. And then he basically repeats himself just to make us really squirm. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, i.e. accepted from me, let that person be under God's curse. That's not very comfortable language. I mean, this is not like just saying, well, I hope they stop preaching this, this bad gospel. This is, I mean, this is basically worse than sort of swearing at them. And, you know, Paul is invoking God's wrath upon these people. He's calling down the judgment of God upon these people that are, that are presenting a different gospel. He says, may they be cursed. Anathema, cursed by God. Not just cursed by me or you, but by God. May God judge. This is how, are you getting the sense of how strongly Paul feels about this? This is actually really getting under his skin. May they be under God's curse because they are preaching something that is utterly opposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. And then Paul stands back in verse 10 and sort of almost sarcastically says, do you still think I'm a people pleaser? You know, do you still think that I'm really trying to win God's approval? In other words, go back and read the last couple of sentences I just wrote and you tell me if you think I'm really just out to try and make a friend I mean, he's just invoked God's curse on people. This is not really the behavior of people pleasers, you know, invoking God's curse. You know, this is like step five in how to win friends and influence people, you know. Don't invoke God's curse on people at parties, you know. Don't do this thing because they're not going to like you. Paul hasn't read that book, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to basically do social etiquette stuff because he, he said, really, God needs to curse the people that are going to present a different gospel. This is not what you would expect of a people pleaser. This is not someone who's trying to earn people's approval. This is not someone who's just trying to pander to the crowd. All Paul really cares about is God's approval. All Paul cares about is being faithful to God. All that matters for him is being true to his calling and serving God and having God's approval. This is, and Paul has given up unbelievable amounts to get to where he is, and he's just not going to take this accusation that now he's just peddling the gospel for the applause of people. 
He is just singly concerned about God's approval. He says, am I now trying to win human approval or God's approval? If I'm still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And sometimes I think we can, we can think about Paul and we almost feel like he's this sort of superhuman guy who just had it all together. You know, Paul just, as if he didn't really struggle with a lot of the same things we struggle with. Because we struggle with this people-pleasing thing, you know, but we think, oh, Paul, he just had it all together. He's this stoic, independent, self-sufficient guy. He, obviously, he just had it so good, had it so tight with God. But I don't think that's really the case. I don't think Paul didn't want to be liked by people. I think he had a basic instinct that, like us, he wanted to be loved and affirmed and liked. by. That's just natural, isn't it? I think Paul wanted people's approval. I think Paul wanted love and affection and validation. That's human. That's normal. We sometimes go to such an extreme with this stuff, we almost feel like we shouldn't need anything from anybody. We just should be completely, utterly self-contained. But it's very human, this basic instinct to want and desire the affirmation of others. And there's nothing wrong with that in a healthy way. I mean, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he says, open wide your hearts to me as I've opened wide my heart to you. He wants relationship. He wants their affirmation. He's he's a human being. And there's a healthy sense in which we're created for love, created for relationship, and a reciprocal giving and receiving of love. But what these Judaizers are accusing Paul of is going much further than that. What they're saying is, this is for Paul, this has gone beyond just a healthy desire to be liked by people. Paul has become, they say, a people pleaser. And so they're accusing him of of this healthy need for love and affection, having gone to a point where it's now controlling him. And this is really what people pleasing is. When that healthy desire for love and approval becomes a craving for people's love and approval. When a healthy appreciation of a compliment or praise or affirmation becomes a need for praise and affirmation or our something inside me dies if I don't get it. It's when just a healthy... Uh, longing for validation and approval becomes an insatiable desire for that validation and approval so that I crave it and I need it and I'm addicted to it. That's why some Christian authors call this approval addiction because it actually possesses a lot of the same properties as addiction to other stuff. People that struggle with approval addiction have a tremendous sense of powerlessness. As much as they might rationally know, they don't need other people's affirmation, validation for their own self-standing. It doesn't change the fact that at a deep level they crave it. And it controls them. It controls what they say around other people. It controls who they are. People addicted to others' approval have a very low sense of self-identity. They don't actually really know who they are because who they are is an amalgamation of what other people want them to be. Other people's opinions, 
what other people expect them or want them to say and act and do, others' expectations, others' affirmations of them. They actually become slaves to other people. And this, you actually have a feeling of being enslaved, a feeling that you are ransomed and captive to the opinions of other people. And you hate it. You don't want to, people pleasers don't want to be that way. They don't enjoy being that way, but they feel completely disempowered to change. Because at a fundamental level, there is a deep craving and, a, and such a loss of self-security and self-identity that has to be filled by the affirmations of other people. So they'll do whatever and they'll say whatever and they'll be whoever anyone needs them to be to get that approval and to get that affirmation. Let me read you a couple of questions here and uh, you can see, we won't have a show of hands, you can see if you think you are an approval addict. All right, five questions. Simple little pop quiz here. One, do you often worry about what other people think of you? All right, probably every hand in the building would go up. Do you not do or say things because you think other people may not approve? Do you get anxious when you think someone is upset with you? Do you think other people's opinions matter more than yours? Do you stop yourself from speaking up when you think that someone won't agree with you? Some people started looking at the floor. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's true to home. I mean, it, it's just, this is where a lot of people live. This is what a lot of people struggle with. And it's not that helpful when someone else who doesn't struggle with approval addiction comes along and says, hey, you just need to get over it. You know, you just, you just need to read these Bible verses here. Don't you know God loves you? Because what's a people pleaser going to do? Oh, okay. They're a people pleaser. They're going to try and please you as well. So, oh, what do I need to do? I read my Bible. Okay, start reading the Bible. You know, they're, they're going to do whatever you tell them to do because they're trying to please you. See, there's this whole circular thing that goes on. It's very difficult to solve because you give them advice, they'll take it, not because they want it, but because they're trying to please you. So this is the problem. You know, well-meaning Christians often have this kind of, well, just get over it mentality. Don't you know God loves you? Don't you know you need other people's approval? And it actually just makes them feel worse because they know that. They know that. But it's not connecting. It's not sinking in. It's not the driving force in their life. They're living out of something else. They're living out of approval addiction, even though they might be able to tell you the whole gospel of grace, they're living out of something else. There's a disconnection. And so the shift that needs to take place in a person's life is a much deeper shift. And it's the shift that Paul describes right at the end of this passage in verse 10. He, he draws this wonderful contrast. He says, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's the contrast People-pleasing over here, servant of Christ over here. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you might expect Paul to say, instead of being a servant of Christ, being free in Christ. We think that the antidote to approval addiction is being set free in Jesus. But in fact, Paul says the antidote to being a people-pleaser is to be a slave to Christ. Either way, your option is slavery. It's really just choosing who you want to be a slave to whether you want to be a slave to other people or whether you want to be a slave to Christ. 
And that may not sound like much of a choice. You think, oh, being a servant of Christ, that's not much better. I have to run around trying to please Jesus now. I have to run around dutifully at his whim, trying to just make him happy, trying to put a smile on his face. I'd rather just stay over here trying to please people. At least I can please them. I can never please Jesus over here. But that's totally misunderstanding the idea of what a servant of Christ is. For Paul, being a servant of Christ doesn't mean trying to earn Jesus' love and approval and favor. It means being enslaved, being a servant to Jesus' love for you. It means being enslaved and apprehended by the incredible love of God that's already been given to you. Paul's not running around trying to earn God's favor. He's not running around trying to put, clock up some brownie points with God. He's apprehended by this reality that God already accepts him. God already approves of him. God already loves him. Being a slave to Christ's love means being totally overwhelmed and overtaken with the simple, simple reality. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's the simplest truth in the universe. But this is the truth that approval addicts need to become enslaved to, not just to know in their heads, but to become deeply, deeply overtaken by. You say, well, how does that happen? How can I get this into my heart? I know it, I know it, I know it, but it's not here. I think it comes in a multitude of ways. It comes through the quietness of sitting alone with God in front of a passage like the one Phil read out to us earlier from Psalm 103 and actually asking God to seal this truth on my heart in a way that it's never been sealed there before. And actually allowing yourself to hear verses like that as God speaking to you. Not some dry, dusty text but God's word to you, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Lord, help me to hear that. I need it to sink into a deeper place. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed all your transgressions from you. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love. God, I need to hear that. I need you to seal that on my heart. I think it comes through the quietness of asking God to really reveal his love to you in a new and profound way. And constantly reminding yourself of it. Constantly reminding yourself that you are loved by God. That you are accepted by God. That he does approve of you already. That he does delight in you already. It's so countercultural, I know, and it's so counterintuitive. But it means grabbing a hold of this so that you are so saturated in the approval of God that you begin to have less need for the approval of other people. And then alongside this, here is something else just really practically that I've found very helpful in this. You start to tune in to what your mind is telling yourself. It's what we call self-talk. It's like a radio frequency that most of us aren't tuned into most of the time, but at a deep level, our mind is constantly telling us stuff, and a lot of it is junk, and a lot of it is lies, and a lot of it is stuff that we don't need to have in there, but we're not even aware of it. So at one level, you can be, you know, you might know all the answers, and you know that Jesus loves you, and you know about grace, but at another level, you're listening to stuff. Your mind is telling you stuff that you're worthless, you're not important, other people's opinions are more important than yours. You don't have the right to speak up. It would be terrible if that person didn't like you. It would be catastrophic if that person disagreed. And we start listening to these voices instead of the voice of truth and the voice of Scripture. And when you start tuning into that self-talk, it's very insightful. Next time you find yourself in a situation where you're tempted just to say something to, just purely to please 
someone else, or you hold back because you're, you're fearful of what someone might think of you, or you exhibit these kinds of approval addiction tendencies, just take a second after that, after that all passes, just take a second to write down what was driving me in that situation. Where was that coming from? What, what self-talk was going on in that moment that actually led me to do that, to say that, to think that? And just write it down. Now maybe it's, I, I, I didn't speak up because if that person disagreed with me or didn't like me, that would be unbearable. That's honestly how we feel. We just feel that would be so unbelievably awful as an experience if that person actually disagreed, if they didn't approve of me, if they didn't like me. Find out what that lie is and then name it. It's the, that's the lie. That's what you're telling yourself. That's where this is coming from. This is the lie. And then start replacing that lie with the truth. What's the truth that's going to counter that lie? What's the statement that's going to say no to that statement over here? And maybe it's, I don't need that person's approval because I'm already completely accepted and approved by God. Tie it back to God's love, God's affirmation. It's not unbearable if that person disagrees with me. I don't need that person to approve of everything about me. It wouldn't be catastrophic because God has accepted me, because God loves me, because God has forgiven me in Jesus Christ. And whenever your mind is tempted then to go down this road and start rolling out the same old self-talk again, bring yourself back to this truth. Bring yourself back to this reality and speak it to yourself. And use it as a truth to counter the lie. Because your mind's just going to go over the same old loop if you let it. Same old neurological loop, it's just going to get stuck on repeat day after day after day, unless you build an off-ramp and give it something else to think about. So that when your mind gets on that loop, you start bringing in a truth. You start bringing in something else. You give your mind a way of going to another idea rather than the same old broken record. This, I think, is getting at what Paul talked about in Romans 12 when he said, be renewed by the, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is actually where it starts. We need to start retraining our minds to think in healthy ways rather than negative ways, rather than self deprecating ways, rather than ways that just flat out go against the Scriptures. And as we do these things, then gradually we are shifting the center of our identity, the center of our security from other people to Christ. And we are allowing ourselves, we're allowing God to give us a deep sense, a deep foundation, a deep, a deep well out of which a life can come where our desire isn't to please others, but only to please God. I think this is a journey that takes an absolute lifetime. It is not an overnight fix. And it may be that you need someone to come alongside you, a counsellor, a friend, to start working on some of the deeper issues that might be there because there can be deeper issues going on. I'm just on the journey with this. I mean, I feel when I stand up and preach, I feel like my motives are mixed at best. Is there a desire in me to be liked and approved? Of course. That's just me being honest with you. In some weeks, it's not healthy. Some weeks, it's far more than it should be. That, that desire, that craving for the approval, for the affirmation, for, for the encouragement. So don't all come and encourage me today, all right? Because I'll know you're just doing it because I said this. <laughs> but, but, but this is just real stuff, you know? And, I, and what I'm sharing with you, I know this is very sort of nuts and bolts stuff today, but it's practical things that I've found helpful to come against what Paul was being accused of right here. There was, 
in the, uh, in the 17th century, there was a guy who was up against some of the same things that, that Paul was up against in Galatia, and his name was Martin Luther. And just as Paul was, was trying to uh, breathe truth into some situations in the church where things had gotten out of control, Luther was trying to reform and uh, bring the church back and defend the true gospel against all of these things that were being added onto it. And he was hauled in front of the Roman Catholic authorities and pressured to recant his views, pressured by a number of people, the, the very highest of uh, levels of authority that he was answerable to, pressured to just do away with these heresies that he'd been spreading. And that pressure was tremendous. And I want to play you a clip from the movie Luther to see how he responded to that and keep this idea of people-pleasing and of being secure and captive to God's love in your mind. Notice the phrase that he uses about his conscience being captive to God's word. Have a look at this clip. Not quite sure why everyone looked green in that clip. But. What, what I love about that clip is that you sort of sense with Luther there's a little bit of trembling. You know, he's not this sort of stoic, macho, doesn't care. There is real trembling, I think, behind what he's saying. He doesn't, he's not saying these things lightly or cavalierly, but there's also this deep conviction. And I think that's probably true with Paul as well. Don't hear in Galatians this sort of dismissal, I don't care about anyone else. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm sure he wrote with fear and trembling and with deep humility. And there is always that. And there should always be that. Because that humility is so important. But I think for Luther and for Paul, and hopefully for us, 
there is at the same time such a deep sense of self-security of who we are in Christ that that becomes the source of what we say and what we do. And it gives us this freedom. It sets us free. When you have that foundation in the love of Christ and you know in the core of your being that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When you really, when that gets a hold of you and you become a slave to that, a slave to Christ, it sets you free. Free from having to pander to other people, to be bound to their opinions. Free from having to do and say things just to keep people happy. And free to live out of the extravagant, incredible love of God. That's the life that Jesus died so that you and I could experience. And it is possible. And it is a journey. But it starts today, right? Let's pray. Father, I pray for all those here who struggle with this. I pray, Father, for those of us who are tempted a lot of the time just to please people and cater to the, to the crowd and just do things or not do things or say things or not say things in order to make other people happy. I pray, Father, that you would set them free this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just give them an incredible revelation of your love and your grace that would sink into hearts this morning in a far deeper way than it ever has before. Lord, seal your love on our hearts. And even though we don't deserve it or haven't earned it, remind us, reassure us, convince us that we are accepted and approved of by you. And that's the foundation out of which everything else can come. I pray for those this morning that might, might even realize in this moment that they're doing things in their lives. They're in jobs. They're in degrees. They're in relationships really just to please others and meet others' expectations. And I pray that as that awareness comes, you'd give people courage to take some steps in another direction, take some steps towards grace, take some steps towards a self-security in you. And Father, help us to do this in a way that's humble, in a way that's respectful of others and doesn't dismiss them but also in a way that we don't need to crave the approval of others because we have your approval. I thank you that you are so sufficient, that you are more than enough for us. And I pray you'd help each of us to be increasingly sufficient in your love and in your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.